This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. Hey, and I'm Jesse. Hello, Jesse. Hey, Scott. How's it going? Well, how's it going with you? Uh, it's going well. Good. Yep. Snowing outside. We're talk. Oh, is it? Yeah. Have you got snow? No, just rain. No, yeah, you're on the much. coast, so you don't get snow. Not as much. Not as much, right. So, I guess we're the only two going to be talking about this big, chunky book. It's not that big. No, it's not really. It's an hour book. It's maybe 350 pages. Mm-hmm. It's called Oath of Fealty yeah. by Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell. Right, yeah. And, and I was excited to read it because I'm a fan of um, Lucifer's Hammer. I, Me too. That's one of my favorite books. I, you know, I love Lucifer's Hammer. So, yeah, and this is one um, that they wrote that I haven't read. I read uh, Footfall. By I have not well. read that one. I want to read that one. It was similar to Lucifer's Hammer in that um, it kind of dealt with the same kind of thing, but it was an alien invasion, not a disaster. Yeah, how does it compare with War of the Worlds? Um, boy, I read it so long ago that it's hard for me to say, but, um, I'm, I'm sure they paid homage to War of the Worlds, you know, like they do in their books. They always throw in, um, things, you know, like in this book, they mentioned Heinlein mm-hmm. and, uh, they mentioned another science fiction book called The God Whale. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's one um, I had to, I had to look that one up. Um, let me see what I've, it's uh, very influential in the way that it's, you know, that's one that's not on audio, I don't think, and it probably should be, because my mm-hmm. uncle, who's a big science fiction fan, talks about it quite a lot. Oh, really? I think it's by T.J. Bass. Yeah, T.J. Bass. Um, the Wikipedia entry says it's a sequel to Half Past Human, and it was nominated for Nebula. Uh, the novel deals with genetic and biological inventions with a strange and mythical twist. Mm-hmm. Uh, presents a view of far future Earth in which almost all non-human life has been exterminated due to rampant overpopulation, and most human beings have been transformed into weak, docile, diminutive creatures via genetic engineering and extensive reliance on automation and artificial intelligence. Yeah, so I, I guess um, in this book, the 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 reference to that the God Whale comes with. Uh, regard to the fromates uh, i guess mm-hmm. uh, that's the what is it the friends of earth and man i think is a short sh- uh, shortening of that mm-hmm. the friends of earth and man and they're sort of a eco-terrorist group right they uh, uh there's a place in this book called Toto santos which is the central point of the book um and Toto santos is an archaeology or an entire um system in which it's supposed to be a closed system where you know, like the Earth is a closed system, but Toto Santos it has thousands of people living in it, and it's supposed to manufacture everything that it needs to survive without taking anything in from the outside. Um, well, it's but, not. It's not quite. It doesn't quite work that way. Though, yeah, it right? doesn't I quite. Mean, it doesn't quite work that quite way. But that's that's the point. Los and Angeles, and yeah. the the guy who designed it, uh, he one of his reasons for doing so was as a stepping stone to a starship. He said, well, you know, if you have a starship that's going to need to be out there for years and years, it's going to need to be an archaeology. Yeah, um, and archaeologies, uh, really, you know, I was reading about them, and I think the Wikipedia entry says something frequently discussed in science fiction, and I think that's just not true. I, I think archaeologies are not frequently discussed anywhere. Um, 
but they are occasionally mentioned in science fiction. Yeah, and I and think you can sort of retroactively say, "Oh, that was an archaeology," or "This will be an archaeology," or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I'm fairly sure that the first time I heard the word archaeology is when you sent me uh, a link. Oh, really? To it. <laughs> well, you, you said, hey, obviously look, never is... played. Yeah, you obviously never played uh, SimCity 2000. No, I did not. Yeah. Aha, uh-huh, because that's where I got archaeology uh, interest. Was in in SimCity 2000, you start off as a, you know, building a regular city, and as time progresses, I guess as you approach the year 2000, uh, you get different, you know, technologies available to you. Like, I was going to say libraries, but I think that's civilization <laughs> that uh-huh. you get libraries, um, and eventually you have the option of building arcologies within the cities. And uh, there, I think there was three or four different kinds of arcologies, and um, it was just like a giant, you know, building. That had a huge popu- hugely dense population in a compressed space and economic activity, and it was just basically more compressed mm-hmm. uh, version of what you were having going on in a regular building. So, is the and, is the definition of archaeology just um, a dense, densely populated building mm-hmm. or structure? It has to be an artificial structure, I think. Or is yes. it? Does it? Is the definition contained that it has to be self-contained? Well, it, it's invented by a guy. The word archaeology is invented by a guy they mention in the book, and one of the characters mentions having worked on the project, a guy named Paolo Soleri, and mm-hmm. he he's it's a portmanteau between architecture and ecology. And the Wikipedia entry says it's a set of architectural design principles aimed to design an enormous habitat of extremely high population density. So, it's it's a it's something designed to uh, turn a small space into a more functional space. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, going high. basically, you know, a lot of the science fiction novels and movies like. Star Wars, what's the planet that Coruscant, or I think it's called. Yeah. Coruscant, or whatever it's right, called. Right, or the, Tantor from the Foundation series, which I think Trantor, is where he got Trantor, it. yeah. Trantor. Yeah, Trantor. Tantor, Tantor is an elephant in uh, Tarzan. <laughs> <laughs> and also uh, uh, an audiobook company. <laughs> right, right. All right, so um, those are examples of, I guess, planets that have become giant cities, right? And archaeology is sort of like the stepping stone to that or something like that. Who knows? Hmm. Um, but the thing is, is really, it's a, it's a, it's more of a, there's all sorts of examples of real life, you know, quasi archaeologies. Mm-hmm. Um, but really they're not, they're not as successful as one might have guessed. Right. They might've been when, you know, they were, they were going and, and there's lots of, if you look at the, the Wikipedia entry, there's lots of science fiction references, um, Mega City One, I think it's called in uh, Judge Dredd, is is hundreds of city blocks, which are basically archaeologies or something. I mean, it, it, it's not a, a radical idea, but the, I think the idea is with the ecology element is that you're going to be using a lot of a lot more efficiencies that will take advantage of that, and that sort of shows up in the in this novel, right? We've got all the all the energy savings and and time savings. One of the one of the big selling features of Toto Santos is you don't have to do your own taxes. It's all it's all in your rent, right? Right, right. 
which uh, I mean, th- th- those are some of the lines that I think uh, would really resonate with people today. Is um, why should I be an accountant for the government? A free, you know, doing all this extra work and turning everyone into a lawyer and turning everyone into an accountant. Um, that that's got to resonate with some people. Yeah, yeah, it does. And and the the plot kind of hangs on the fact that Toto Santos is built in Los Angeles. In a, mm-hmm. in a portion of Los Angeles that was um, extremely run down, and they yeah, built I think this... it was burnt out or something from right. uh, dis- dis- some sort of disaster or yeah, terrorism yeah. or something. Right. So they built this uh, giant, huge, giant building, huge skyscraper, and uh, it's autonomous. It's not connected to the Los Angeles government. It's its own entity. And if I understood right, I don't recall reading this specifically, but it w- was it part of the United States even? Yes, it's it 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 is uh, it's quasi associated with Los Angeles. It's sort of like an autonomous municipality. Okay, so it's its own city. County. It's its own city inside Los Angeles. But yeah, you know, you get the impression several times during there that they've got their own laws and they've got mm-hmm. their own. I mean, you know that they have their own police force or security force, but mm-hmm. you, you know they've got their own laws, and I guess they're city level laws, not. Um, yeah. Federal sort of bylaws type. or whatever, yeah. but but the main thing that was more interesting than the the laws per se was you know they they have the the tour of the facility and they talk about the differences between a regular city and and uh, Todos Santos is that the culture is different right right the customs right. are different so it's not that you can't do something it's that people don't do something yeah and like um, an example of that would be how quiet the people were when you mm-hmm. had a an area where they call them Angelinos. Angelinos from Los Angeles can come in and they can shop in this area. And when, and that's a place where Angelinos can mix with the people who live at Toto Santos. And one of the characters, I recall realizing that all of the noise that he's hearing is from the Angelinos. All of the people that live inside the building a hundred percent of the time are quiet. And that's a cultural difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there. So let, let's. Why don't we talk about what we thought of the book okay. a bit? Okay. okay. So, what what did you think of this book? Well, I I liked it. I mean, it was very readable and everything. Um, the by far the most interesting parts to me were when they were talking about the archaeology, or talking about the building, talking about how things worked, talking about the politics of it. But the the characters and the story line. Um, wasn't a it wasn't a great story in my opinion no um it wasn't something that i was like you know really suspenseful you know flying through that you know i would perk up whenever they were starting to talk about the building so i don't know if that's the engineer in me coming out but that's uh i really enjoyed those parts over the character parts yeah uh, it's kind of it's kind of strange that we can't write a story that's just a setting right it has to be has to have a plot and as such, this plot is kind of all over the place because the interesting parts are not the are not the not the the terrorism as much as they are the um, the, the tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you and, know, and, and as that's I was really reading, why it doesn't work, I think. Yeah, and as I was reading this book, I was thinking um, Luke would have been perfect on this because he spends so much time on cruise ships, mm-hmm. and it's all you know. That that's an archaeology, isn't it? 
In a way, yeah. Except uh, I'm not sure how eco it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, um, I'm not sure how eco it is either. But um, the idea that okay, you're putting all these people on there and they're going to live on here for ten days. I'm sure that they take on uh, stuff at every port they go to. Yes. Of course um, they do. And also, that, that, that's a flaw in in Toto Santos. Even though it was supposed to be autonomous, um, one of the stress points in the plot in the book was that they're not and they're pretending to be um like the the government of los angeles and the government of Toto santos are at odds because the the government of los angeles sees them as a drain of resources and they're not giving anything back yeah it's it, it's the the thing is is there is this tension between between uh, the reality of reality and and the dreams of utopia. So usually utopian stories try to uh, isolate something and say, look at how things would be if it, it was just isolated and perfect, right? Mm-hmm. And this is, I mean, one of the, I think the second page in my book, the paperback version I've got here, uh, says, uh, crisis in utopia, dot, dot, dot. Right? Well, this is supposed to be a utopian book. And I can see, you know, the the elements that, people would regard as utopian but if you say we're going to be on the earth but we're not going to interact with other people that's not utopian that's just dreaming because existing means interacting no matter you know the hermit kingdoms of uh, the east asia were all were totally interacting with their neighbors it's just they had restrictions on where those interactions took place and if, as long as you aren't floating out in space you're going to be interacting with your neighbors. It, it just would be ridiculous not to. And so I think this book is trying to have it both ways, and, and that's where the plot comes from, right? The, yeah. the interaction between the people who feel like they're being drained and the people who think they're better than the other people. Or, I mean, it, it, is, a weird, it is weird in that the, uh, the city of Los Angeles really doesn't have a, an advocate uh, that's quite worthy of of the advocacy that the Todos Santians or the All Saints uh residents get. Yeah, and we that's that's true. All of the POV. all of the Angelinos or uh most of them are politicians. Mm-hmm. And their reasons for wanting this is because, you know, the citizenry is um their citizens aren't getting by as well as the citizens in Todos Santos. At least that's the perception. And I think that that's also where some of the uh, the uncomfortableness that a lot of people find in this book comes from. This is this is a walled community, right? This is where you 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 pick a bunch of rich people and you put them all together and you say, "Well, we're not going to interact with you poor guys anymore." Yeah, at the uh, base the- at the base of this giant skyscraper are slums and people living off the scraps of whatever the. Uh- Toto Santos releases, I guess, and they don't release very much. And they don't right? release very much. Yep. They're they. I mean, the thing is, is there 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 are a lot of elements in this book that made me think of of what people in cities are sort of going towards now as well. Uh, I mean, the the transportation issue. One thing near the end of talking about basically a company called Zipcars. Have you heard of these? This mm-hmm. is like if you live in the city, you want to. You need a car every once in a while. Well, just buy a membership to this company, and you can have access to the car whenever you need it. But 
it's not your car. Yeah, I've I've heard of people doing that with bikes. I think some sure. cities do that. So you you have a card or a key or whatever, and you go mm-hmm. out and you take one of the bikes, you ride it to your destination, you put the bike in the rack, and then you mm-hmm. uh, when you come out, you take a new bike or another bike, you know, whatever happens to be there. Yeah, same kind of idea. That's a good idea. There's lots of really good ideas that are sort of cultural traditions, cultural developments rather than technological developments that come out of this just thinking about thinking about living differently especially in a sort of a a dense environment rather than a, a country environment in, in the country environment you have to have all your own resources but the people there uh, some some of it comes off as rather strange so when they're talking about the visitors to the mall right they're talking about how they go to the store and they buy their things and then they have those those things are delivered to them mm-hmm I'm thinking, well, that's really not the shopping experience, and I don't see that actually happening, yeah. except except if you're, it's like a, it's like the TSA where you're not allowed to hold anything and you're not allowed to have anything because you, those things might be a threat, and and that sort of that also played into a lot of the thoughts that went through my head while I was reading this book. Is they are extremely security conscious. I mean, this book has uh, the. Toto Santos has cameras everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. In in people's apartments, mm-hmm. in people's uh, out on people's decks, maybe, and uh, in even in bathrooms or mm-hmm. something like that. And that was like, wow! Will <laughs> will people really accept, uh, you know, their their government looking into any room in their house? Yeah, looking at every behavior that. Doing. And I, you I, know, I and one of the things they kept saying, a, you know, one of the things they kept saying was one of the selling points of Toto Santos was safety. Mm-hmm. None of these people worry about anything. You know, these they don't have to worry about their safety, and they never have to worry about their safety. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, said over and over. So it's interesting. This book is written in 1981. You know, of course mm. there was terrorism back then, as there's terrorism now, but mm. it it rings so true. You you read it and you're like, you know, it gets you thinking about okay, the trade offs between you know, the security that's happening here in the United States, you know, what we're allowing um, our lives to be disrupted in certain ways. And, you know, are, we're allowing that for safety or the illusion of safety. Um, and it turns out in Toto Santos, well, that's kind of an illusion of safety as well, because, you know, the fromates are, you know, trying to blow up the building and things. And uh, you get the impression that this the citizens don't really know what's going on most of the time. They only they only get what the Toto Santos, uh, the higher-ups, tell them. It's very, um, there's there's a lot of sort of very Heinleinian uncomfortablenesses that come in reading this book. And not a lot of them are, you can't like put your finger on it and say, aha, this is, this is exactly what's wrong with this society. Because the, it, it is sort of a stacked deck. All the, uh, a, a lot of the characters are... I mean, just the repetition of the mantra that, that came out of this book and that you hear people say, which is, think of it as evolution in action. Um, it's, kind of a, it's, it's kind of a look at those stupid people down there uh, attitude. Mm-hmm. And that is particularly... Uh, apt in many cases you say you know that somebody doing something that stupid well that's that is evolution right they're not going to be able to reproduce because they're dead we got it but it's also you know if you go around saying everything is 
think of it as evolution in action. It kind of um, it sounds like you're everyone is talking to themselves and they're not thinking about it in a more nuanced way. And and I understand that this is sort of a nuanced idea to begin with, but it I think maybe the, it's repeated about fifty times in the book. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's there's a reason for that. I'm not sure what it is, but it's an it it made me think. Mm, I don't quite like that. Yeah, what yeah, what it made me think of was that it's these people's vision of what the next step in evolution is and this high opinion they have of themselves. You know, they're thinking, well, this is the way to go. You know, this is the way humanity is going to go and then on the very last page of the book there's a character that realizes that hey, it's okay for me to not to want to live in that building. Because mm-hmm. humanity is more than just one type of person. But it's also okay that that building exists. You know? So, yeah. you know, when they keep saying evolution in action, they were using it to um, basically justify what their actions are. And some of their actions are not good actions. You know? Yeah. And, uh, but they I, were, I don't but think they, were they did just, a lot of bad stuff. That, the no, they, did, is, they didn't do a lot of bad stuff, but they did some. But the... The idea that that's what I think that the words mean is that they're they're justifying you know and the reason that they keep saying it and the reason that the the head of Toto Santos said it at the beginning was he just saying this is the way it is this is the way humanity is going and this is the right way for it to go and I think the the right part of that sentence you know the word right is mm-hmm. what is in their thinking yeah. when at the end. Um, after all the events that happened in the book, I think that at least that one reporter, he gets the idea that, hey, um, it's it's okay that that exists. It's okay for me not to want to live there. Um, I think he said, like, a, a Maori tribesman is not going to want to live in that building, but that tribesman is just as human as these guys are. And yep. So humanity is is big, is what he was saying. It's not just one thing, and there's not just one way for it to go, and we need to... Let it go all these ways, not just the one way. Yeah, it it, it it's it's not a complete failure as a book. It's just there's no, some no, it's not. There's there's some. I mean, it's it it doesn't stand along with the other Purnell and um, Niven collaborations. I don't think. I think it's it's the worst no, one. No, and, and it doesn't. I think just because the the of the the story part of it, you know. Yeah, it's it's it's. I think it's very hard to write a story set in an arcology uh, that isn't a that isn't a uh, a revolution. You know, it, it is a pro arcology book in in a lot of ways, and yet utopia dystopia stories are much easier to tell from the dystopia point of view. You know, mm-hmm. uh, rebelling against the society is is much uh, much easier to tell that story. And so if we were to read another version of the book told from the uh, Los Angelinos point of view, um, I think that the, the story would have to be radically different. Because the, even though I think that, the more I think about it, the more I think this is true, that, that the characters, that, that the bad guys in this book, the eco-terrorist people, are actually not unrealistic. I think they're actually fairly realistic in that a lot of people believe all sorts of stupid things with no justifiable you know basis in reality underneath it um uh, there are eco-terrorists it's very strange 
but they do exist. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that they uh, they get uh, they will get as much support as they they do from regular governments, uh, at least in the United States. But there there are there are people who who act in very odd ways, given that they don't you know they don't practice a lot of their own beliefs and but they're saying you know it's it's just we can't do it yet we have to get everything perfect and then it'll be it'll be okay so uh, i think that the the bad guys in this book might be <laughs> realistic but i also don't think they make very good bad guys because i don't have a lot of sympathy for their position and then that, that undermines is, yeah that quality. is absolutely true because you know, I have no idea why they were doing what they were doing. They just didn't like it, so they want to take it down, you know. And that, well, that, was, that was really that, the whole motivation. It wasn't like, you know, wow, you guys are right, you know. I think you guys are right. <laughs> I never they, felt they, that. Never the, felt uh, the word they use, they call it a termite hill, right? Yeah, yeah. And and that's a pejorative attack. And I can see people saying stuff like that. And it's resentment, right? So mm-hmm. we don't belong to that club, and that's not fair. And what do they want? They want to be in the club. They don't want to be poor, maybe. Or they don't want to be this, and they don't want to be that. But it, it seems like a very yucky reaction to to have the people in there be sort of, um, yeah, well, we are just better than them, yeah. <laughs> in a way. And and think of the the time that this story is, play, is set. Uh, not it's not set it's set sometime in the future i guess but the the time in which it's written the place in which it's written is uh los angeles uh before massive riots in the i guess the 90s and and such this is a place where economics and race are mixed and there's a i think there's one part of the book near the beginning talking about one of the characters being black and yeah. how this is uh this is okay. <laughs> and I'm thinking, <laughs> well, this just dated the book for me to that exact period of time. And then right near the end, there's also uh, a, a woman gets attacked by, by some of the eco-terrorists. And one of them is a, um, uh, one of the terror, eco-terrorists is a woman. In, and, and the attackee says, oh, she must be a lesbian. And I'm like, what? <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, uh, okay, people might think that, but why is it in the book, right? How does this help advance the plot? Right. And uh, it, it, feel, it felt like, a, like Heinlein could have written a book, <laughs> um, especially in his later... Uh, it, yeah. it, it's a very Heinleinian book in the sense that it's got a, uh, a utopian agenda and it's got some sort of straw men characters uh, as the villains... And it doesn't quite work. It feels like a late Heinlein novel in, in mm. a way. Yeah, and I don't think I've read any late Heinlein novels. The only one I recall reading is Job, A Comedy of Justice. That was mm, Yeah, that's one. a little bit different, but it, it yeah. does have the non-working part that uh, a lot of the Heinlein books, you know, early ones work quite well. And mm-hmm. so, Well, I wanted, uh, to, I wanted to make sure we talk about the Disney connection. Oh. Um, well, when you, when you were talking about... Um, you know, the guys shopping in the mall and then they just uh, send that stuff to your room. That mm-hmm. got me thinking about Disney because at Disney World, when you go there, if you stay in one of their hotels mm-hmm. and you shop, you just give them your room number. And it doesn't matter where in the whole park you are, the mm-hmm. stuff you bought shows up in your room that night. 
And um, so that got me thinking about Disney. But what what really got me thinking about Disney was Walt Disney, um, his design of Epcot. Uh-huh. Um, Epcot stands for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. Right. And the Epcot that exists today is not what he envisioned. Um, the the one that exists today is kind of like a World's Fair. You know, uh-huh. it's so, and, and apparently that was an aspect of the thing. But what he wanted to build was a place where people really lived. And uh, companies actually manufactured things there. And it was all connected, kind of like an archaeology. Yeah, the, it's called Spaceship Earth or something. Uh, well, yeah. Building. Yeah, the Spaceship Earth is the the globe, the kind of the trademark of the park. Yeah. You know, the big thing that's at the very, very opening. But the... Uh, he he actually designed this radial city, you know, where everybody, when they, you know, they live on the kind of the edges and things. And mm-hmm. then when they wanted to go somewhere, they would travel um, to the middle. And then the, from the middle, they could go anywhere. And so they could, you know, so transportation was a huge part of it. You'd step out of your house, walk over to the thing. It would shoot you to work and you'd work. And, um, you know, he actually contacted companies. Companies were ready to um, build factories in this Epcot, you know, mm-hmm. and they were going to use different manufacturing techniques. So he, he was talking about all kinds of stuff, and then um, he died in 1966 before it was built. But he was still designing it and messing with it right up till the day he died. And then um, the company decided, well, you know, without him at the helm, he's he's the one driving the whole thing. So It was his baby. It yeah. was his baby, so they didn't build it. And then Roy Disney um, kind of resurrected the project then they ended up building magic kingdom and then after magic kingdom they built epcot but only a piece of what um disney was thinking about so to to me the whole you know it it had a big kind of a disney connection when i was sort of fits in with the um the uh the gated community idea though as well right yeah and and disney actually did the the walt disney company did build a city or a town called celebration and i've been there um just kind of walked through we we went somewhere to uh we ate there one time or something um but i i don't know much about the community itself but there are standards and rules you know if you own a house in this community you have to i don't even know what the rules are and things but it's it's got elements of the of the uh gated community but mm-hmm. I know it's not gated because we didn't drive through a gate to get in there. I don't believe. So one of the one of the things that this sort of ties into also, if you've got a gated community and you, and you regulate access, this is like putting up a border, right? And you have, in a way, part of the problem here is, if you think of Todos Santos as a country, then the people breaking into the country are crossing the border illegally and trying to blow things up, right? They're terrorists. Mm-hmm. Very clearly, um, but the the thing is, is there's also the brain drain aspect. This is the resentment, right? So the, what they what they do is they take all they they get people outside of Todos Santos and bring them in based on how well they think they will contribute to the to the community. So if if they they find somebody who's a you know really good at a, a really good entrepreneur, they'll finance them and they'll they'll help they'll bring them in and take them out of that community and this is this is what happens to third world countries so canada for example likes to uh, have lots of immigrants we have lots of immigrants and we take 
Um, a lot of immigrants who are highly educated, even even if they when they get here, their degrees are not as uh, as useful as they thought they were. We're still stealing these these you know very valuable people from other countries because we'll accept somebody with a you know a, a good education, and we won't accept somebody with a, with a poor ec- education. Uh, all things being equal, mm-hmm. um, that pulling out of out of other places, picking it, cherry picking from other places, should make the third world countries that a lot of the people are coming from very resentful. Yeah, and maybe they are, but I don't know. I, I don't know that that's their main concern because once once it's gone, they've got other problems to deal with, right? But the the thing is, is it is stealing from outside and it's taking that the you know taking the best resources which are really people not the best resources we have are people they're not things right they're not natural resources but the people who uh work with them education is is the is the key to success and if you take all the best people and you you take them out of that place and put them somewhere else you're gonna hurt wherever place you're you're taking from and and I think that that is an interesting aspect that is explored a little bit in this book, um, but I don't see it explored in a lot of other SF, which I think is is something that this book has that uh, is sort of not mentioned in a lot of the reviews I've read. Hmm. Yeah, the um, the aspect that it'll be a um, you know kind of a stepping stone to a starship was interesting as well, and what you're talking about, you know, the people that they'd put on that starship would be a brain drain too, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, every every book that you read where a ship takes years to get to where it's going, those are arcologies. Mm-hmm. And um, did, did you hear, you know, in, the, in Mars, you know, on the Mars trip, uh, the, the idea has been officially put forward that, hey, why don't we send folks to Mars and not worry about bringing them back? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I wonder what kind of community they'd build there. You know, that would be interesting stuff, too. Uh, I don't know if you'd call it an archaeology, but of course it's going to have to be fairly, it's got to be self-contained, you know? Yeah, it has to be self-sufficient. Right. Now, the thing is, is if you have tools and you have resources and you have people, which is the number one thing, right, mm-hmm. after the tools and resources, then you have the possibility. But going going to Mars... Uh, with any number of people would be, I mean, it, it, it's it's not a, it's not a, uh, it's not something you would do for, I mean, a lot of the problems that this book is trying to solve and a lot of the other problems that similar books are trying to solve are not real problems. Uh, O'Neill colonies, you know, uh, Jerry O'Neill thinks um, Catholicism is going to drive the population uh, of Earth so high that we're going to have to build communities in outer space just because there's going to be no room on Earth. That's not anything like reality because mm-hmm. the population, even in Catholic countries where you know you you don't want to ban birth control, it's still the population's dropping, right? It's mm-hmm. the the places where population isn't dropping and are in places where um, people are poorly educated, um, the economy is bad, and that's the the way to solve population is not by building space colonies it's by you know just making sure that everybody's level is uh more equal than it is now because people stop having babies uh by the dozen when 
they have economic security. Mm-hmm. A lot of, I mean, you have to remember that if, if you remember that people are the resource, then you don't go for quantity, you go for quality with your education, your, your children, your community, your all that stuff. It makes it less likely that you need 10 kids because uh, if all of them are going to survive their childhood, if all of them are going to get an education, if your community has um, some social safety net for you, then you don't need to have a bunch of kids who are going to take care of you and to work your land. You just need one or two, and that'll satisfy them. Mm-hmm. One, one's, one's enough for most Chinese people, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they could. Uh, some people need to uh, leave, uh, leave China to express their desire to have multiple children, and some people do do that. But one, one child policy hasn't met with a giant uprising. Yeah. yeah. I, I just, I, I think the important part is, uh, I don't think we need arcologies, but I think we need uh, some of the ideas that arcologies uh, like this one have. Just, you know, using resources in a much more um, reasonable way. Community tool libraries, I think, would be a really good idea. You know, where the tools are not owned individually. They're owned by uh, the community or the city. And you go to the library and you check out, you know, the hacksaw that you need instead of buying your own hacksaw. It makes no sense to own a hacksaw if you only use it once a, once a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I was thinking as I was reading this book was, you know, kind of lamenting, you know, as I often do when I read science fiction, lamenting the fact that we don't seem to be working on a lot of this stuff. <laughs> you know, um, you know, our space program's kind of been at a standstill for years and years and years and years. And, um, you know, when I started to look into the arcology stuff, I think they're building one in Abu Dhabi. Abu Dhabi, yeah. Abu Dhabi, yeah. Uh, Dubai. Dubai. <clears throat> I think maybe it's Dubai. Dubai. Yeah. Um, I don't they're, know. I don't know what the real plan is, but Dubai, when I was looking they're at just building, they're just building. There's no people in Dubai. <laughs> uh, the capital, you know, the the city is full of buildings, and very few of them are occupied. Yeah, and in, in the Wikipedia, it says the largest archaeology project under current development is Mazdar City near Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. It's projected to house between forty-five thousand and fifty thousand inhabitants on six square kilometers, and to have a sustainable zero-carbon, zero-waste ecology. Yeah, that's the idea. Yeah. Interesting. So somebody's working on it, which is good. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and like it's, you know, as a step to uh, space travel, you know, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan. I, we, we need to get off this planet. <laughs> we need to figure out ways to go. I think it was, uh, wasn't it Hawking who, uh, he gave a speech one time where he said, really, the only way that humanity is going to survive is if we get off this planet. Um, because we're not very nice to each other. I, I think I think that he's completely wrong about that. I think uh-huh. that. It, I mean, I, I don't want him to be right. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want him to be wrong, but I think he's completely wrong. I, there's no reason to move to Mars for um, anything like uh, for anything other than like tourism or something. I mean, it, it has no resources that we. It has no air. It has no water. It has none of the things that we need to sustain regular life. So you either have to change people or you have to change the, the, 
change your expectations. And I don't think we can change people uh, to not need oxygen. And I don't think we can change people to not need water and still call them people. We, we can send robots there. I, I mean, I'd like to go to Mars. Hell, I'd, I think it'd be awesome to go on a one-way trip to Mars. But I just don't think it's, it's likely to see a, a space colony there anytime soon. Uh, uh, you, you might as well live in Antarctica. Yeah, you might as well, which is another thing I want to bring up. Uh, is Antarctica, yeah. but um, yeah, I think we need to be exploring. Those, I think that it's it's uh, are... it's not only um, good for everybody, you know, to ha- to explore. It's good for everybody as far as even just morale or psyche or however you want to put that. But it's also the the give the stuff that it gives back. The uh, um, I forget what the word is. Uh, uh, anyway, you know when you when you spin off stuff, that's it. You yep. know the the spin off from the American space program is huge. You know, there's oh, a lot of and, things that American, and, yeah, and, and that's meant, that's the yeah, kind of thing that we need to be doing. Sort of part that you're talking about. I mean, this is the bloody universe. Let's let's go out and see what it's like. Yeah, let's go out and see Maybe what it's like. Are, and there's a there's a human ideas. there's a human reason to be doing that. And it's like it's ingrained in us. It's the reason we went across the ocean. Um, but I also don't think that you're going to get a lot of people on board with that. I, I, I think, and it's, it's okay. Absolutely. I mean, it's okay if not a lot of people are on board, but they'll they'll be cheering just as much as everybody else when we land somewhere, you know, because it's it's remarkable, it's amazing, and we need to be doing that kind of stuff. I'm not I'm not so sure that the cheering, you know, the, people will cheer for a lot of stuff that seems awesome, like they like the you know the the show. What was the the Beijing Olympic show? I never saw it. You know where they. They do the the giant dancing, and people go crazy about that for like a couple of days on yeah, the internet. I, I didn't see that either, but okay. But I know that that's an example of one where a lot of people around the world thought it was very impressive, right? But they're not willing to spend the money, right? They're, they'd much yeah, rather. And and that's that's true, and that's a problem because, you know, the amount of money that they're spending is not a heck of a lot when you, comparatively. No. Um, yeah, and the spinoffs. You know, everybody forgets about the spinoffs. You. You know, I read an article last year, you know, when um, President Obama was making the the policy for NASA. Um, there's a lot of articles around at that time. And one of the articles said, you know, if if NASA had patented, had they been allowed to patent mm-hmm. as a public company, um, the stuff that they were coming up with, they would have funding, you know, because, you know, the just the patents would be coming in and... And they would, be, you know, be working as a company, and they'd be able to uh, spend their money on uh, space flight. As long as they weren't a publicly traded company, because they'd they'd sell off those rights immediately, yeah. because mm-hmm. that's that's how to make profit is to, you yeah, know, sell yeah. off all your best resources, and right. and then, wow, look at the quarterly profits are up. But anyway, but you know, dollar for dollar, the space program gives back a lot. And Look, it's not if just we're, inside. If we're talking logic, what you do is you 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 cut the military to defense, not actual, off you know, passive aggressive defense where you make military bases all over the world. You, you cut the you cut the budget to actual defense, right? Mm-hmm. Just actual defense, which would be I don't know one eightieth of whatever it is right now. I mean, Canadian Canadian defense system. W- 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 the explanation that I've been told by people in the know. As to why the Canadians spend so little on on um, on our military is because we have the the this giant neighbor who doesn't 
uh, mind taking care of us, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we work integrated uh, pretty much. Our militaries are um, work together. So we've got this giant neighbor who's very friendly. But the the last time we had an actual invasion was from the United States. So <laughs> and we're coming <laughs> our, back. Our actual buddy. defense is we not. We are all coming that. back. You guys are sending us way too many actors. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and comedians, and a bunch of other. Uh, I, the thing is, is you're not. You might. Uh, it, it's kind of scary. I don't want to. I don't want to think too much. You know. I don't want to draw too much attention. <laughs> you don't want. You don't want to have people talking about it on the news too much. Right. Anyways, right. Um, the the important part is, you know, if you actually cut that budget and you just funneled all the the man hours that are being wasted filling out requisition forms for. Uh, tanks and all the <laughs> billions and billions and billions of dollars that are being spent on essentially blowing up things in foreign countries and making really lots and lots and lots of people mad at you, you would be on Mars with a space colony that was so awesome, we'd be talking about saving up to go on a, a cruise, you know? Mm. It, it, there, well, there's more than enough money to get to, get to Mars and, and build all sorts of casinos and all sorts of Weird, weird, cool things there, but it's you can't sell that. It's not we can't we, we need an alien threat. When the alien threat comes, well, I, I tell you what's going to happen. It's not going to be an alien threat. What's going to happen is China is going to launch a person to the moon, and we're going to start up again. That's what's going to happen. You think? I I almost know. <laughs> China's working on it. You know, um, they, they've announced that they're working on it. I'm pretty sure, well, it was either Japan or China who sent a probe up there. But um, China is planning a moonshot. And um, when that happens, I think that it's back on. I mean, I, I think that's unfortunate, too. I mean, why why can't we just be all doing this all at the same time and together and all this stuff? But it just doesn't work that way. But I, I have a feeling that what's going to happen is not that. I think it, what would happen is... The United States will say we've been there, done that, and and then let's go back to watching Dancing with the Stars or whatever. Yeah, because it's just not, it's just not, uh, it's not sexy enough. It's and more importantly, fear is the dry was the driving factor in the in the space race, right? And China's China is not super feared anymore. So even if the Chinese are dancing around on Mars and building uh, domes and stuff, that's not necessarily going to drive yeah, the Yeah, I'd, I'd agree that there's not the fear factor that there was in the Cold War, but I think um, I think it'll kick right back on. You'll have plenty of politicians saying, hey, we need to get this moving. Because e- economically, um, you know, that's an upper hand. Um. So let's uh, let's get back to the book for a minute. <laughs> okay. Oh, and there's one yeah one other thing that I want to talk about too uh, sure. that it does does have to do with the book is another archaeology that they mention is McMurdo Station down in, in Antarctica, mm-hmm. which is a fascinating place. Um, yeah. Cool. And I wanted to make sure that I mentioned Encounters at the End of the World by Walter Herzog. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a documentary film. It's absolutely fantastic, and it's about the people that live at McMurdo Station. All the Herzog films are actually really, really great. Yeah, check check out some more of those. I will. Um, McMurdo, yeah. So uh, Antarctica is a, a good example of why <laughs> archaeologies are less eco and more more uh, u- utopian than you know. I mean, they import everything. 
The only thing they don't import is water. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure they could import water if, if, if uh, you know, there was some logical explanation for it. They, they have to import everything because there's, not, there's no resource, there's no community, there's no um, giant infrastructure surrounding them that can assist them enough on their own. The, uh, in the book, they import hydrogen, right, mm-hmm. to uh, run their, their power plant. I'm not sure if it was supposed to be a, a fusion plant or whatever it was. But however, however they did it, they imported hydrogen and they, they imported water, too. Yeah, um, they pulled an a iceberg up from Antarctica. It's not really a great idea to have, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, a city in Los Angeles when, you know, that you've got not enough rainfall there to begin with. So you, you're going to have to import that water from somewhere. No, no place can be completely self-sufficient, and that, uh, not with any, you know, reasonable standard of living. So uh, that, you know, the pulling up of icebergs to, to su- supply the city, yeah, it's possible. I think desalinization would be a, probably a lot more efficient. Hmm. But whatever. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention was... Um, the most unrealistic thing in the book uh, is the Canadian. Oh, yeah. There's uh, a Canadian that uh, visits the station, and he's the one who's given the tour. Right. He, he is give, not Reedy. giving the tour. He is given the tour. His name is Sir, Sir George Reedy, mm-hmm. and he's uh, labeled as the Deputy Minister of Internal Development. Um, I'm sure there there's a possibility of having a Deputy Minister of Internal Development. Um the uh, deputy ministers are high, highly placed. Um, uh, it's basically the the highest civil servant job. They're the people who run the departments, etc. Um, so that that that's entirely plausible. What's not plausible is that he's not he's a a knight, uh, mm-hmm. sir. He's Sir George Reedy. We don't have knighted people in Canada. No, we haven't had knights or any any such people since like 1918 or something like that. Well, if you work a little harder, maybe. Well, that's the thing is, is in, in the UK, if you're a deputy minister, you, you're going to get knighted somewhere along your career. It's, it's, a, it's expected. It's part of your service for government services. It, it's in lieu of, of greater pay. I mean, there's, there's lots of advantages to having a, uh, an honorific system. Um, and it makes sense. And we have one, um, there's like the Order of Canada, uh, mm-hmm. where if you do service to the country, you get you get a or service to the public or whatever. You get you get a little uh, I was going to say cross, but it's sort of you know a medal, and you get uh, honorifics on the end of your name and stuff. But it, there's no knights in Canada. That was just silly. Oh, okay. It's completely wrong. I mean, uh, the the most the best example is um, Conrad Black. Do you, you know about him? No. I don't. Okay. I haven't heard that name. Okay, Conrad Black was a American newspaper. Uh, sorry, Canadian newspaper baron. Basically, he owned lots of newspapers. Um, and if you want to be successful in newspapers, the ultimate place to go is England. And you go. He, so he goes to England, and he uh, he has dual citizenship, so he he um, can live there. And he sets up on Fleet Street and has newspapers there. And as a part of being uh, a Fleet Street um, newspaper baron, he gets an actual title, Baron Black, right? Mm-hmm. But the um, 
the prime minister at the time, his name is Jean Chrétien, um, pointed out that we don't allow honorifics of that kind. There are no lords in Canada. So it would be inappropriate for him to receive that honorific. I mean, there's probably a little dispute between the two of them, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the fact you know, he's a newspaper baron and, and he's not doing what the government says, etc. But it is true that we don't allow that. So in a, in a huff, uh, Black gave up his Canadian citizenship and has since um, uh, been arrested and jailed in the United States for uh, stealing from his own companies. But <laughs> just the, the, the very fact that we've got no honorific system like that means, well, this character's not really... His only job in this story is to be a foreigner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's, he's considering building one in Canada and he's asking all kinds of questions about, you know, does there need to be a city around it and that kind of thing. I think I think this is our is is in a way a sort of a our access point to the to the story, right? We bring in some someone who doesn't know very much about it, and we get we get that. And I think that that was interesting, but he really sort of falls out of the story too, right? Yeah, he sure does. He kind of disappears. And this is maybe this is maybe where the comments I was pointing out to you before the podcast started uh, that I found on a blog, um, the interview with. Um, I guess a, a chat room interview with Niven and Purnell. Mm-hmm. That's um, on House of Tones. Yeah, House of Tones blogspot.com. Um, the uh, the c- people were asking, I guess, many questions at them, and one of the things um, uh, they wrote was Larry Niven said, "I'd like to read Oath of Fealty that would have been published if our editor had been doing his job." And I think this is a a, a nice. Uh, uh, in fact, it, editors really do uh, make a difference. So um, and he says next, Oath is still a good book, but we missed the feedback, I guess, that an editor would have provided. And then Jerry Purnell says, Oath is a very good book, but it would have been better with Bob Gleason as editor. Gleason bought the book but left Simon & Schuster before it came, came out. Um, and the editor did, made it a best- bestseller, but he didn't do any editorial work on it. Wow. Um, and then, um, I think, I do believe, you mentioned something that was interesting. Um, Jerry Purnell says, a good editor will make a, a book a lot better. Sometimes really a lot better. And then this is the line that struck me. Uh, Heinlein did the editing on Moat in God's Eye. Wow, no kidding, I didn't know that. Yeah. And then it's like, well, now we, we you know, we get the ideas that you, you take a, a bunch of good ideas, especially when it's co-written like that, and you say, well, this is what you guys wrote, but here's what's wrong with it. Here's what I see is it's lacking focus here, and it, 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 it develop this more. Take that out and remove that and change that scene. Right? That's the kind of stuff, this is the kind of stuff that makes really great books. I don't think a, a, a lot of people can can just get by using their friends or... or um, or, you know, you know, and we're not talking friends, we're, we're just talking like people who, you know, their family members as their own editors, or, or the people who buy the book, who don't really edit books anymore, they just buy them, mm-hmm. right, and say, well, I like this, but it's a little bit too long, or could you make it a little, little longer, or can you make it a, uh, not have an ending, because I want to, don't wrap it up so neatly, because we want to sell the next book in the series. I think yeah. I'm sure I'm sure it varies by publisher, but I've been in numerous um, panels where they've talked about the role of the editor having changed 
so much over the last 20 years because they're so busy. You know, they, they're working with the minimum number of people they can possibly work with. And, yeah. um, you know, this person may have, you know, several authors that they're dealing with all the time. And, it, you know, the editing that used to happen is not something that happens now. Yeah. Uh, which explains, you know, you've brought up several times why the books are longer. And, well, I, I don't know if that you bring it up as a sales point of view, but, um, yeah, they're not getting cut down. They're not that's, getting my, down. that's my explanation. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that it's justified other than by just looking at the shelves. I th- I, I mean, uh, there, I'm wrong about a lot of stuff. One of the things I was wrong in my thinking about is is saying, you know, series are a new thing. That's totally not true. I was looking at Anne of Green Gables. Mm-hmm. I, that thing was a huge series, right? Yeah, and there were a lot of series when I was a kid. You know, when you think about that, you know, The Great Brain was one that I used to read as a kid. Mm-hmm. And um, Tarzan. Sure. Um, Mars, or, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs yep. had several series, yeah. But basically a series was a sign that there was more demand. I mean, Wizard of Oz, there's tons tons of that. But the problem here is is we're training people to expect a series, I think, rather yeah, than yeah. demand a series, right? We expect a series, and we don't demand a series. And and so it's the cart leading the horse or the, the, um, <laughs> the editor trying to... Um, well, you know, don't you think it would be easier on the editor too? Because, well, it's easier on the writer for sure, for certain, because a lot of the groundwork's already done and they've already got their characters and things and they try to throw a thing in the mix to make it new, you know. But for an editor to read a, a book about the same set of characters, um, you'd imagine that a lot of the initial work you have to do, it doesn't exist right there because, okay, these are established now. So we. We can do, uh, you know, different things. I don't think the I don't think the editors make a lot of changes. Right. I think they they're really only looking at the sales figures and and that, that make their decisions based on that. And yeah, we need to get uh, an editor on. You know, uh, if we can find one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, like that actually edits. You know, you know what? We should get John Joseph Adams on. Oh, because that would be terrific. He, he doesn't do novels, right? Mm-hmm. But he he has. Uh, worked as a short story editor, and and he does some anthologies. Yeah, I'd be interested to know how much, you know, he, you know, when he buys a story that's an original, um, you know, does he help him tweak it? You know, does he tell him, hey, well, the, uh, this section I needs it's, fixed, or it's possibly based on you know the the level. You know, so Stephen King gives him a story, he's not going to, Stephen, we're going to have to go back to the drawing board on this, this, and this. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, right. and the one but, the one that I sold, um, Orson Scott Card was the editor at that time, mm-hmm. and he sent it back to me and said, "I need you to do this and this and this." And did it improve the story? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> You're not well, kidding, it did. Yeah, there's an example of of exactly uh, exactly what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing is, is there is a proper structure for for everything, right? There is a better version of us, you know, the stories can be improved just by focusing on a few different things and f- finding the development. I mean, it's it's like the editing process of a uh, just a regular essay. Um, you're just going through it and and thinking about it and getting some feedback and all that stuff can help. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know. We're yeah. probably spending too much time talking about. Well, that I part. agree. I agree. Hey, one, before we go. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about technology.com because I thought okay, that was yeah. way cool. Yeah, it's a cool website. Yeah. Technology. 
Technology.com, where science meets fiction. Um, Jesse, right before the podcast, sent me a link to this. Um, I don't know how you found it, but Oath of Fealty is listed with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven technologies that Mm -hmm. appear in this novel that, um, you know, so I'm assuming that it does this with several different books. Oh, this this site does it with basically every major science fiction novel. Yeah, and that's, that's neat. So in Oath it's, of Fealty... It's sort of, you, it's sort of community uh, organized, too, I think. Oh, is it? Kind of I Wikipedia so. type thing. So Sort of, yeah. Yeah, so Oath of Fealty, uh, it lists Arcology, mm-hmm. Briefcase Console, the original yeah. notebook computer, yeah. Communications Implant. We didn't really talk about that, but there's a... No, that's, that's interesting. The yeah. central uh, computer system... Uh, of Toto Santos, you can talk to. Some people have implants um, so they can pass information back and forth. Um, it's not an artificial intelligence. The computer. Uh, so. I think it, I think the computer is artificially intelligent, but it's not. It's not conscious. Yeah, it's not a character. It, yeah. Well. Yeah. No. It's, know, it's a tool. It's a tool. In, in the audiobook, they've got a. Uh, 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 the female narrator does the computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's Mini or something like that. Yeah, Millie. And um, Millie, yeah. Millie. And uh, the, one of the cool things about the audiobook version is I think they did some sort of voice processing on her, so she sounds a little bit like um, like GLaDOS or GLaDOS from, uh, from the, the video game. What am I talking about? Hmm. You, know, you know the Portal, the video oh, game? Oh, Portal, okay. The, the, the bad guy in the game is the, is the computer, right? Mm-hmm. And she has sort of a a processed computer-y sounding voice, and I think they use the same sort of algorithm for... Oh, that's cool. ...for, for uh, Millie, which is kind of fun. Yeah, that's neat. So, yeah, the communi- mm-hmm. communication... But, uh, yeah, I, I saw her, though, as a tool. I didn't see her as an artificial intelligence. You know, they would ask her questions like, um, give me the, the lowdown on this person, and mm-hmm. then the computer would feed him all this data. Well, it can, it can certainly a- understand complex questions... Mm-hmm. Not every time, but often, and in a yeah, way, it would understand complex questions. But it, what it was is, it was like a Google to me. It's 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 a little more advanced than Google in some respects. But I mean, it it made me think of uh, my Google app on my phone. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I wish I could have the Google app on my my PC because I just you can ask a you know you just speak into it. And you say, uh, what is the temperature in Vancouver right now? And it makes that question, and then it does a search based on that, right? No kidding. I don't, I've never tried that. Got it <laughs> I've got an iPhone. Amazing. I need to try it. It's an amazing... It's the best app uh, that isn't uh, the actual... I noticed, that, I noticed that they have a thing called Google Goggles, where hmm. you snap a photo of something, and it'll do a search and try and match it up. Like it's, Yeah, it's, it's right. It's on the same part of the search. There's a the type section, and there's the Google Goggles button, which is an image, and then there's the... The voice, the voice one. So the voice one is an amazing uh, voice recognition technology. It's as good as I've ever seen uh, voice recognition. And the Google goggles uh, still leaves a lot to be desired, but it's really good at color matching. Hmm. And it can do some logos. So if you snap a picture of, uh, of you know, the <laughs> McDonald's logo, it'll tell you who, who that logo belongs to. Hmm. Um, probably the Wikipedia logo or whatever. Hmm. I mean, if you see a logo on the bottom of a product, you could snap the picture, but Hmm, interesting. Um, it still has a ways to go, but the the communications implant is is a sort of a cyborg technology version of you know having a Google Brain or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Brain Pal. 
That's uh, yeah. that's from Scalzi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Old Man's War. Started uh, reading that with my students yesterday. Old Man's War. Yeah. Oh, neat. I got a bunch of copies. I've still got to catch up on those. I've got to. I haven't read past Old Man's War, which I did enjoy very much. Uh, I think I read the second one, and that was enough for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the other technologies that it lists are iceberg water tub, uh, which is how they were getting water to the to the place. Uh, mechanical mole, which is an underground vehicle that digs tunnels. Mm-hmm. And robot probes, or R2s. And, and it says right in the book that, you know, I called these R2s after Star yeah. Wars. So um, they're robot probes that uh, you can fly around and record you know, video. And then a telepresence bulldozer, which was really interesting. They have, they talked, uh, there's some people that live in Toto Santos that their daily job is to go into this room and sit in a chair and run a bulldozer on the moon um, for mining on the moon. So it's called a telepresence bulldozer. Robotics for remote operation. You know, I think one way that reminds me of uh, one way this book could have been fixed is to maybe have told it entirely from the reporter's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, because the reporter, he does this documentary uh, calling it the new, the new um, feudalism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on on Todos Santos. And, and in a way, uh, that was a way of engaging the, uh, the plot and reporting on all that stuff. I think it might have been better. Uh, Jerry Purnell and Larry Niven don't write stories together told from the first person perspective I don't think and it's always uh, third person yeah. I mean there's about well, there's, there's so many characters, characters oh, yeah book, and right? I was going to ask you how how could you uh, keep them straight in the audio every now and then in in their books which I just love they they do a cast of characters so every now and yeah, then if I hit I hit a name yeah if I hit a name that I haven't seen for a while I look at that and I say okay I'm with it now Well you'll be pleased to know I've already uh, scanned that and run it through OCR and I will put it in this post Oh cool because um, you're Andy. right. Uh, yeah. I didn't have it with me, carrying it around uh, on my iPod. But I, I ha- listening to the audiobook, I and I have the paperback version. Uh, you need kind of both to, rem- yeah, remind yourself. Oh yeah, who's this guy? And I mean, they're not even in order of sort of who 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 has the most speaking screen time. One of them, I think, the last one on the list is Subway Mugger. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they're in order of appearance in the yeah, book. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, but you were talking about how you'd fix it. You know what I would do if I was writing that book? Is I would make sure that I had some characters that were just average folks. Um, yeah, you know, they, they, sure they're, they're, all, they're all talking about... There wasn't ab- that many. No, there wasn't that many, but and they certainly weren't part of the plot. I think, you know, having an average person, rather than describing, you know, when they're given a tour and everything, you know, how this person, how these people live and how they think... You know, it would have been nice to have a a character. You know, you know who should have edited this book? Who's that? Cory Doctorow. Hmm. If if Cory Doctorow had done the 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 revisions on this book, I think it would have been a lot uh, a lot more agitation and a lot less um, Heinlein. You know, Heinlein's good at coming up with the really interesting ideas. Um, and Cory Doctorow's, uh, well, how does it work from, you know, the ground-level perspective, I think. Uh, that one might have been, you know, do it as a YA novel with uh, the, one, of the, those, one of the kids involved in, you know, is involved in the gang of, um, of 
what are the I, I mean the UCLA professor who's a fromate, right? Mm-hmm. I thought, oh well, the, this is um, not all that unrealistic because you know you have wackos in the weather underground who who are doing this, and uh, I mean we, we there are all sorts of, of links to um, radical movements in universities, so it's possible or or one of the kids of the the mayor and one of the kids of the uh, Todos Santos. I mean, who knows? There, it might have been more interesting to say, yeah, from a from a more a less high on the totem pole perspective to see what the the story would have been told like. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it would have been more interesting to. I, I would have come out with a feeling of you know, hey, that that's kind of what it would be like to live in there. Right. If there was a character from that perspective, you know, all the characters were like the president or. I forget what the title was, but he, he runs the place and he's the chief engineer. And, you know, it's like uh, on yep. the Enterprise, you're, you're talking about the bridge General crew. manager. Yeah, and you're talking about the bridge crew, none of the uh, assistant. Yeah, not yeah. the crew members. So. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one, of the, um, one of the things would to have been done it that way. I mean, it is, it is very top-down and... And uh, they're, they're, they did try and do a little bit of that with uh, talking to the – we get little snippets from the documentary, like some guy saying how great it is he doesn't have to get dressed and go to work. He just, you know, wakes up and makes some coffee and drinks it while he's waldoing on the moon or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is some, you know, scattered – we talked to uh, a bartender and a few other people who are out there doing things, right? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it is not told from – what it's like to live in there as much as it is told from uh, the told to the visiting Canadian representative. That's we don't get. Yeah. We get a lot of tell not show. Right. Right. Maybe. Um, what were the other three on that um, list? Um, let's see. Tech, tech, oh, I think, did I close it? No. Um, no, we, we got through them all. The, the mechanical mole, which is the underground vehicle they were using. Okay, right. Um, and then the, um, didn't they, they didn't include slidewalk on that list. Didn't they have a slidewalk? No, walk? they didn't. They did have a slidewalk, and they attributed that to Heinlein in the book. Yeah. They, there was a, a little article from Millie, I think, <laughs> that yeah. listed the technologies they use in Toto Santos. Oh, waterbed. Yeah, waterbed. Yeah, that's yeah. right. There was a bunch of... Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think the slide walk, I mean, you do see them in, in, in uh, I think LAX has a slide walk, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the Salt Lake City Airport has a slide walk, but okay, it's yeah. just a, a, a long, uh, what, escalator? A long, I, flat sure escalator. It's because it's in, um, it's in the... The roads uh, must roll, remember that? Maybe yeah, it's, the, it's the sheer scale of it. No, think of the also the city, I think, in... Um, in uh, I was gonna say Arthur the moon. C. Clark, the moon is a harsh mistress. Uh, no, I don't think they had it in Moon. Um, the, but uh, yeah, what's what the, they uh, the city? What's the one with a robot uh, city? Not the city in the stars. The one with the oh, it's Isaac Asimov. Mm-hmm. It's um, uh, the robots of dawn. The caves of steel. Too? The caves, caves of steel. They have yeah. uh, they have all sorts of underground stuff, don't they? Well, there was a domed city, like New York City had a big dome on it. But I thought they had um. Uh, kids running around uh, on the slidewalks with different speeds and jumping on and jumping off. Uh, I don't, I don't recall, but you could be right. Maybe, I'm, maybe yeah. I'm, I'm hallucinating that. No, you're probably right. I don't remember. All right. Well, Getting I guess old. we can call that a book. All righty. Um. Yep. 
Uh, 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 remembering back, which do you prefer, uh, Footfall or Oath of Fealty? Because I haven't read, I hadn't read either before this. Wow, I mean, they're they're totally different. I enjoyed Footfall. I, you know, it's just been so incredibly long since I read it. But when I read Footfall, to me, it was a lesser version of Lucifer's Hammer. Mm-hmm. It was enjoyable, but it wasn't as good as Lucifer's Hammer, is how I recall it. Okay. And comparing it with this book, I don't know. It's kind of a an apocalyptic you know, end of the world, end of civilization story, which I like. So I probably would have selected Footfall over it. But, you know, I liked it. I'm glad I read it. Yeah, it's just that... Uh, um, I, I really enjoyed the ideas. The audio, right? There, this is a new audiobook um, on Audible, mm-hmm. the Oath of Fealty. It had never been on audio before. And, and uh, Footfall is also up there. And oh. I'm thinking, well, I, I, I didn't love this book. I think it was very thought-provoking. And I'm thinking maybe I should check out Footfall as well. Yeah. yeah. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.